Well, good evening, and it's nice to have you with us here this evening as we look at uh, the start of a, a new series. As Adam has said, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the topic of coping with doubt. Now, it's quite common for Christians to have doubts about their faith. But there are different types of doubt and different reasons for having doubts. In this short series, we'll be looking separately at three different types of doubt experienced by Christians and in some cases uh, by people who just call themselves Christians. And we're going to use the three types of doubt identified by Gary Habermas. Uh, the first, which we're looking at tonight, is factual doubt. In other words, is the Bible and its message and the events described in it, is it actually true? Not, is it nice? Is it interesting? But is it true? Did it actually happen? Or was the Bible just made up? Now, some people are quite happy to accept that what the Bible says is true, but nevertheless, they experience doubt of another kind, which uh, Gary Habermas has called emotional doubt, where they ask the question, am I really saved? Perhaps because they maybe have done something wrong and they fear they have lost their salvation, or they wonder, did I believe right when I thought I became a Christian? And it's often very good Christians who are plagued with this type of doubt. And no amount of reasoning seems uh, to be able to rescue from that. They fear they may have lost their salvation. Uh, and next week, David Earnshaw will be talking to us about that form of doubt. And then there's a type of, third type of doubt, which I've called willful doubt, or which Gary Habermas calls volitional doubt. It's really asking the question, do I want it to be true? Some people would quite like the Bible to be false, perhaps so that they could be free from the moral obligations which the Christian faith brings with it. And if one doubt is dispelled, they immediately then bring up another question. So that will be the last in our series of three. Now, when we have doubts and questions, we should not be afraid of them. Today's science is, is actually the result of those who questioned the science of the previous generation and who doubted uh, the certainty which scientists of their generation had. And that process is necessary in coming to a better understanding of the objective truth. So if you have experienced doubts as a Christian, don't think of that as a sin or an attack of the devil. Use it as a motivation to explore the foundations of your Christian faith. You may have to repair some of your misconceptions. You may have to fill in large gaps in your knowledge. But through that process, your faith will eventually become more secure. Personally, I became a Christian when I was a child. I think it was about eight years old. I was, I've lived nearly all my life in a Christian, in, in a Christian world with Christian friends, Christian family, uh, a lot of involvement in the church. And I've never really doubted that if there is such a thing as being a Christian, then I'm a Christian. 
So I've never really doubted my salvation, and in that sense, I've never experienced serious emotional doubt. But there is a thought that has occasionally crossed my mind, and it's this. Have I simply been brainwashed? Have I been so exposed and steeped in the Christian message that I have accepted it as the truth without really analysing it? Do I believe only because I've been surrounded by the Christian message from an early age and perhaps shielded from uh, arguments against Christianity? Is the Bible, I sometimes uh, wonder, is it just a cleverly made up book which creates a comforting but ultimately false narrative to help people through life? In other words, is the Bible and its message actually true? Did the events in it actually happen? And for me, this has been the fundamental question I've had to think about uh, over many decades. So my primary concern is not whether Christianity is comforting or even whether it gives meaning to life. My main concern has been, is it true? Now, Christian faith is based on facts. Facts of history and observable facts. Faith is not uh, believing something for which there is no evidence. Nor is it merely believing the facts. It involves accepting the facts, but acting on the implications and following the implications of those facts. And obviously then, if what we thought were facts become uncertain in our own minds, then obviously our faith can be shaken. It seems to me that for those who do inquire about absolute truth, uh, possibly the biggest challenge to Christian faith in our world today is the widespread belief in what is called naturalism. The fundamental belief that the universe and everything in it has and everything that has happened in the universe is the result of purely natural causes. It's a belief that there is nothing supernatural, except in people's imagination. <clears throat> that philosophy was promoted by what has been called the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. And ironically, this followed on from the scientific advances made by Bible-believing fathers of father figures of modern science, like Isaac Newton and others. The, the fathers of modern Western science, the founding fathers, were almost all Bible-believing Christians. And they observed and showed that the universe seems to obey certain natural laws, such as the law of gravity. And the motion of the planets, which up to then had been something of a mystery or even regarded as a miracle, could actually be explained by purely natural processes. That was a big breakthrough in people's understandings brought about by Christian scientists. And now the philosophers who analysed this then went much further than the science warranted. And they made a great leap forward in their imagination by saying that everything must be explainable by laws of nature. If we only had enough knowledge 
therefore, we should not allow supernatural explanations of anything. Now, that was a huge extrapolation. It wasn't based on evidence. It was just a, a leap forward in their imagination. And so they said there is no need for the idea of a God who created the universe and created life. And we are told even today that science has been steadily closing the gaps which previously had been attributed to God. Now, this ideal, ideology put forward by philosophers some centuries ago has become the standard dogma of the scientific establishment today. And not only the scientific uh, establishment, but the uh, religious and theological establishment. It lies behind the rejection of anything supernatural, even in religion. Many Bible scholars and theologians in our universities have absorbed this philosophy. They have rejected the Bible's account of creation as something uh, that happened literally. They've rejected the concept of miracles as being, being supernatural. They reject the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus. And we are told that these are well-intentioned myths, teaching a spiritual truth, but they're not factual accounts of things that actually happened. So since this materialistic view of the universe has become so entrenched in our establishment and in our education system, it's no wonder that many Christians find themselves questioning the traditional Christian teaching often that they've been brought up with, particularly when they come to university and step outside their secure Christian background. They question the traditional teaching that there is a God who created the world, the teaching that Jesus is the Son of God who did physically rise from the dead. So this evening, with that in mind, I'd like to share with you perhaps two main answers that I often go back to which have helped to convince me that the message of the Bible is factually true and not simply that I have been brainwashed. Why I believe that there is a God who intelligently created the universe, that that God became human in the person of Jesus, and that Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God. Now, the first answer that I go back to is one of the main ones that the Bible gives, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And the second answer comes, I suppose, from my perspective as a computer scientist who has spent the last 45, 50 years designing computer programs, code rather like genetic code, only not as good. But it has given me experience of what can go wrong with even one semi-intelligent or moment of mindless uh, interference uh, and just the disastrous consequences that that can have. And modern science has revealed the amazing appearance of design, particularly in the cell. And that's what I'll look at briefly at the end. But first of all, let's think about the resurrection of Jesus. I remember uh, watching the online debate uh, between John Lennox and Richard Dawkins uh, some years ago on science and the Bible. 
Some of you may have seen that. And at the end of the debate, each speaker was asked to make some closing remarks. John Lennox came first. And he moved from the philosophical and scientific arguments he'd been making, and he mentioned the resurrection of Jesus as evidence of who lies behind the universe. I vividly remember Richard Dawkins in his closing remarks pouring scorn on John Lennox for lowering the tone of scientific debate by mentioning this weird idea, an unscientific idea of resurrection. Now, Richard Dawkins is not new in this. And I would like just to compare Richard Dawkins with an important figure in the New Testament who responded in a very similar way to the idea that Jesus came back from the dead. The book of Acts describes how Christianity spread out of the religious world of Judaism and into the secular Roman world, the Roman Empire. It was often accused of causing trouble and the Apostle Paul was accused of hate speech and of spreading lies. And in the final section of the book of Acts, the Christian message is put on trial in the secular courts of the Roman Empire. There, it was examined unemotionally and factually. The best way to examine uh, Christianity. And the key question that was being asked is, is it true? Now, there's one particular Roman governor who was responsible for judging Paul's, the case against Paul and the case against Christianity. His name was Festus. And we read about him in Acts chapter 25 and 26. So let me read to you what uh, Festus, how Festus describes his first hearing of the case against Paul, a preliminary hearing in Acts chapter 12, sorry, 25, verses 18 to 20. This is what Festus, this is how he describes it to King Agrippa. He said, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. Look at that wonderful description of Festus's understanding of Christianity. A dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. This was a man who was going to judge Christianity. How would you describe Festus as a judge? Had he made any effort to understand the message of Christianity which he had been asked to judge? It seems not. He dismissed this idea of resurrection, but he dismissed it with no knowledge of the evidence supporting it. So it seems to me that Festus was woefully ignorant of the message he was judging, particularly when the question of resurrection uh, was raised. Now, he makes another comment in the next chapter. And let me just read you Paul's um, uh, explanation and how Festus responded. So this is uh, what Paul says first. He says, 
I'm saying, this is his summary, if you like, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. That's Acts 26, verses 22 to 24. Notice Festus's attitude to learning and to knowledge. He says, you're far too deep into religion. Festus had no respect for learning, no concept of investigating something to the extent of actually learning about it himself. Seems to me he was willfully, intellectually lazy. He refused to investigate the facts underpinning the claim of the resurrection. He was not prepared to have an open mind. He had already made up his mind that he, he mentioned resurrection, that's impossible. I'm not going to look at any evidence or anything more. And even though he was willfully lazy intellectually, he still dismissed it as mad. I just want to make the point at this stage that before anyone dismisses the resurrection as not being true, they must first examine the case in detail, at least listen to both sides of the argument. Otherwise, they're just not qualified to have an opinion. Now, let's do what Festus should have done, but didn't do. And that is to look at the question of whether or not the resurrection could have happened. Now, some say, well, it happened all so long ago that we just can't possibly know. But that's not true. Because there are certain facts that everyone, every scholar who's investigated this, whether they believe it or not, nevertheless, there are certain core facts that uh, even skeptical, unbelieving scholars accept about the teaching about the resurrection. And these are the facts which need to be explained even today. The first fact which has become accepted, particularly in recent years, is that the disciples of Jesus started preaching that they had seen Jesus very soon after the death of Jesus. Now, skeptical scholars don't believe what the disciples said, but they do believe that the disciples said it almost immediately after Jesus died. There are some people, I mean, it's commonly thought in some circles that this, the resurrection of Jesus was something that was added to Christianity, perhaps around the time of Constantine, when they wanted to make out the case for Christianity being the established religion of the Roman Empire. And so to add to its credibility, they added the concept of resurrection. But that has been totally uh, dismissed uh, because... Uh, it's now accepted by scholars who investigated uh, carefully and fairly that the teaching of the resurrection was uh, prominent in Christianity almost immediately after the death of Jesus. And I'll just uh, highlight some of the main reasons for that. But that's the first fact that needs to be explained. 
And the second fact that needs to be explained is that their claim, the claim of the disciples, could not be disproved by the authorities at the time. The Jewish and Roman authorities both wanted to suppress Christianity and this teaching of the resurrection. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to have dismissed it simply by producing the body of Jesus. But the fact, simple fact is they could not produce the body of Jesus. And we need to have an explanation as to why that was. So let me just mention about that first point uh, that the disciples of Jesus started preaching that they had seen Jesus. And the timing is important, not after decades or even after hundreds of years, but within a very short time. And this argument has been put forward and has been generally accepted, the argument by Gary Habermas, Professor Gary Habermas. And his reasoning is this. There are many Bible scholars and they think that the Gospels were written much later than is normally claimed by conservative Christians. But there are certain parts of the New Testament they do accept was written, were written quite early. And in particular, 1 Corinthians is accepted as having been written around 53 to 54 AD. That's about 20 years after the death of Jesus. Now, interestingly, the, the penultimate chapter of that letter, chapter 15, it includes what we might call a Christian creed stating the facts of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And Paul says that he received this creed. It was passed on to him, presumably by the apostles, um, after Paul's conversion. Now that was probably about, his conversion was probably between four and seven years after the death of Jesus. So this creed about the resurrection was already prevalent and established four to seven years after the death of Jesus. Now, it takes some time for a creed to be formulated, for uh, the, the witness, say, of the disciples, for them to realise, look, we need to make a summary statement of this that everybody can know. And so they made the, 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 create, uh, the creed was formulated. And therefore, if it took a few years for that to happen, we're going right back to the time of the death of Jesus. And so the first claims of resurrection must have been made almost immediately after the death of Jesus. Now, I just mentioned some important points about that. And that is that, as I've mentioned, sometimes people have claimed that the resurrection story was added to Christianity two to three hundred years after the events happened. But that clearly is factually wrong. The easiest time to discredit the resurrection was when it was first preached, simply by producing the body of Jesus. Yet the Jewish and Roman authorities could put forward, they could not produce the body, they could put forward no evidence to disprove the claim. Now, let me give you a very modern example of a similar situation. Recently, Queen, the late Queen Elizabeth was lying in state. While that was going on, a man rushed forward to the coffin and appeared to want to open the coffin. He was stopped 
by the police, but it seems that he believed that the Queen's body was not in the coffin, and even perhaps that the Queen was not actually dead. And he believed this so intently that he wanted to open the coffin. Now, we dismiss such a person as a victim of a conspiracy theory. But supposing that gained national credence, supposing there were millions of people in the country who cottoned on to this idea that perhaps the Queen is still alive and that her, when the lying in state was only a sham and that her body was not in the coffin. How would you disprove that? Well, it would be quite easy. We know where the coffin was buried. We could go to the coffin and open it if such a thing were permitted. But it would be very easy to disprove simply by opening the Queen's coffin. It's interesting, though, that those who do not accept, if you like, what you might call the obvious explanation that the Queen was dead, this more straightforward explanation, we tend to regard other explanations as conspiracy theories. And in the days after the death of Jesus, we're told of one particular conspiracy theory which was circulating to try to explain why the authorities couldn't produce the body of Jesus. Matthew's Gospel records this one. The conspiracy theory said that it was Jesus' disciples came and stole the body of Jesus from the tomb while the guards were asleep. And that theory gained some credence. It explained why the authorities couldn't deliver it. Now, obviously it doesn't take much to undermine that, uh, as we'll see in a moment. But it does raise the whole issue of conspiracy theories. And this big question, how can we distinguish between the truth and a conspiracy theory? If you take the example of COVID, Okay, I don't, uh, don't uh, intend to uh, offend people here, but uh, I have, uh, over the last couple of years, had extensive, sometimes very frustrating conversations with people who have dismissed the official line about COVID. COVID, what, uh, at first, the theory was that COVID didn't exist. It was a false story manufactured by governments, perhaps to panic people, to control them, to make them more malleable uh, for social engineering purposes. The, when that uh, was maybe dismissed, when it became obvious that it was a real problem, then the next theory was that it was Bill Gates who created COVID and paid for it to make money from his vaccine, which would appear, and he had become a wealthy person. You maybe heard that, You've maybe, you maybe even believed it. But it seems that Bill Gates didn't make anything out of it. So that theory has sort of withered on the vine, but not to be uh, dis deflated. The, the next theory that came along is that, some, that there was some other sinister group behind the scenes who created COVID, uh, as an excuse to use the vaccine to change people's DNA. And there are many people I know who firmly believe, 
and who are refusing to get the vaccine, COVID vaccine, because they do not want their DNA to be altered. Now, there is another theory, and that is that COVID-19 was a genu the genuine cause of a pandemic, and that the official line is actually true, and that the vaccine was promoted by governments not to change people's DNA, but basically to, uh, to save the NHS from being overwhelmed. So, there are four different theories that you may well have been exposed to. I'm not going to go into each of them. In turn. But what I do want to point out is that those theories, you could call them all conspiracy theories if you like, but they conflict with each other. If one is true, then all the others are false. They're mutually exclusive. And that means that if you take what the establishment calls all the conspiracy theories, even the conspiracy theorists themselves must admit that only one of them can be true. And that's important because they themselves must admit that the vast majority of conspiracy theories must be false because they all conflict with each other. At most, one can be true and all the others must be false, even without looking at detail at the theory. So you cannot say, oh, well, there's lots of different explanations for what happened. Uh, we don't know which one it was, but there are so many possibilities. Uh, there must have been something sinister going on behind the scenes. But by definition, most of those options have to be wrong because they contradict each other. Now, thinking of the resurrection of Jesus, there have been many theories, possible theories put forward to try to explain why the body of Jesus could not be produced when the disciples claim to have seen Jesus alive. So let's just take a similar approach to uh, some of the theories that were put forward. There are those many in the world who believe that it wasn't actually Jesus who was crucified, it was someone else. And that explains why Jesus was able to appear to his disciples afterwards. Others have said that Jesus didn't actually die, he survived crucifixion and escaped from the tomb. The third one was that everyone mistook the tomb. Jesus' body was in some other tomb all the time. And that's why um, they weren't able to produce the body. It doesn't explain how the disciples claimed to uh, have seen Jesus alive, but others say, well, that can be dismissed for psychological reasons. The other conspiracy theory is that the disciples stole the body of Jesus while the guards slept. And that theory was put forward by the guards themselves. None of the authorities seem to have asked them the simple and obvious question, well, if you were asleep, how do you know what happened? And yet, that theory seemed to gain a bit of credence. And the other possibility is that this most straightforward explanation is that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. Now, there are those who, you know, who would say, well, look, there are so many things could have happened that one of them is bound to be right. They all sound quite plausible. Uh, so the chances are that one of them was right. 
But actually, again, these are all mutually exclusive. And what that means is the vast majority of them, before we even look at them, must be wrong. Because they contradict each other. You cannot have two of these things as possibilities in your mind because they contradict each other. And so, uh, only one can be true. So, for example, if it wasn't Jesus who died, uh, then there's no need to suggest that the body was stolen by the disciples. Those just can't both be true at the same time. And if, you, uh, if the disciples stole the body of Jesus, but Jesus hadn't actually died, he had escaped from the tomb, again, those conflict with each other's. Now, each of these theories has been looked at very carefully over the years by lawyers, top lawyers, by top doctors. And every single one of those conspiracy theories, as I would call them, has been disproved. The only theory in that lot, in that list, which can't and hasn't been disproved, is that Jesus did rise from the dead. And the, the reason it isn't on some people's list is the reason that Festus had in mind, that Roman governor, who simply thought this idea is mad. That his, his explanation was Jesus was dead, but Paul says he's alive. And his ultimate uh, conclusion in the next chapter, Paul, you are insane. It wasn't that he looked at any evidence, it was simply his first and only assumption. So, the only evidence, if you like, against the resurrection is that it's very unlikely. Well, of course, it's unlikely. But the implications are phenomenal. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, since he predicted it himself, and he said when it would happen, three days, on the third day after his death, it is held up as evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then all the miracles become possible and plausible as well. That there is supernatural dimension to life, that there is a God. And the implications of that for some people are just... Uh, for some of them, they just can't accept that. And uh, we'll be looking at that particular issue in the third of our series. Now, I just want to point out at this stage that before you dismiss the resurrection, you have a duty to investigate what happened. You must investigate it carefully, with an open mind, almost with a legal mind. Find the best explanation. Look at everything critically, including what the Bible says. There is something to be explained. As I've said, there are those two facts that need to be explained. So you can't say, well, it all happened so long ago, we, never, we can never know. It was investigated at the time, it's been investigated down through the centuries. And some people experience factual doubt because they are just like Festus. They have not investigated the facts. Perhaps they weren't aware that there are facts to be investigated. And if you ever, even as a Christian, uh, find it embarrassing to believe in the resurrection, I would encourage you to investigate carefully and legally 
the case for the resurrection as well as the case against it. Look at the evidence, the psychological evidence, the historical evidence and all the various claims. If you're not prepared to do that, then that suggests that you would be intellectually lazy and therefore not qualified to hold an opinion on. I don't mean to be rude, but that's simply the implication. Now, that's the argument or one of the key arguments that the Bible puts forward. I'd like to, um, to give you maybe a more personal perspective that if I were on my deathbed and my mind was flooded with doubts, are you about to slip into utter oblivion? You won't even discover that you were wrong, that there's just nothing. That thought sometimes comes into my mind and I do, I do imagine how I would respond. One thing that uh, I, my mind turns to, just to convince myself and any external voice that I haven't simply been brainwashed, that there is objective evidence, comes from my experience, uh, professional experience, of designing things. As I mentioned, in designing not only computer software, but computer hardware, uh, supervised for the last 30 years, uh, several PhD students who have designed computers, their own computers. And it's just, it's made it so obvious that every component in the computer must interact with other components. It only takes a little lack of synchronization to, the, to make the whole thing fail. Uh, just one clock signal that doesn't reach somewhere at the right time. Just one little transistor that's wrongly programmed and can re lead to failure. So, uh, I've been, I felt feel privileged that scientists in the last few decades, particularly the last decade, have wonderfully discovered some of the amazing appearance of design in the cell. Cells, at, at the time of uh, Darwin, Darwin's concept of a cell was just mush. It was just a little blog. He didn't know what went on. They didn't think very much went on. But as uh, microscopy has, moved, has developed and uh, scientists have discovered what actually is going on in the cell. We're still only at the foothills of discovering the complexity of it. But scientists at Harvard developed some computer animations of, all the, of some of the molecular machines that operate inside the cell. Uh, I just want to show you a very short video clip of one that you may have seen, but it's, if, if something has to be transported from one part of a cell to another, what happens is there is a road that is built with, using proteins from one part of the cell to the other. Then there's a little machine that walks and pulls uh, a sack of the material along that road. Then, when it's finished, the road is dissolved, the materials are recycled and used later to build other roads. Let's see if I can get this to work. So this is the road being built before the transport starts. Then afterwards, when the journey is complete, 
the road is dismantled and the little proteins that make it up are recycled for later use. And on that road, there's the sack being carried, but there's a little machine. It's just one protein, one molecule, that actually walks every little en en tablet uh, of energy causes the foot to walk. It has to make sure that it doesn't trip up, so it has to step over the other foot. And all this seems very carefully designed. One slight, one slight error in that, and we would die. The human race would die out if it, uh, if it wasn't exactly right. So it's the appearance of design. And I think scientists everywhere, whether they believe in God or not, agree that there is the appearance of design. And science has discovered uh, an amazing number, an increasing number of these biological systems and molecular machines. They reckon up to 100,000 different types of machines at the molecular level inside cell living cells. And uh, the big question, obviously, is, is the appearance of design the result of actual intelligent design, or is it the result of evolution? And here I want to risk uh, offending uh, particularly those in the biology field, because it seems to me that the, the use of the term evolution is very sloppy science. The, the, the theory of evolution, so-called, actually is there are several different processes which are all somehow grouped together and called evolution. But many different processes that result in change of animals uh, and humans. And yet they're all called evolution. One of the key principles of the scientific method is if you have two different things, you give them different names. And yet when it comes to evolution, there are very different processes going on, but scientists like to call them all evolution. That's why, if you'll forgive me for saying so, I think it's sloppy science. Now, let me just mention some of these processes. One is splitting the gene pool. So if you take uh, a group of, say, monkeys or finches, and you put them on an island and isolate them from the rest of their population, they will gradually develop in a different way. They'll look different after a number of generations, sometimes not very many generations. Ah, Darwin said, as he saw the, the finches on the Galapagos Islands, that is evolution. But there is no new genetic information being created. Then there are random mutations. Now, we've been able to observe this in, in life and in the laboratory. There's plenty of evidence for random mutations. Every hereditary disease is evidence of a random mutation. In fact, random mutations are recognised because they cause diseases. They are disruptive, they cause problems. And engineers uh, are not at all surprised by that. Then there is, seems to be inbuilt variability to adapt at a population level. Now, so if the environment changes, 
it seems that uh, the DNA can respond quite quickly, recent research shows, that certain things get turned on, other things get turned off by environmental influences. And we're told this is evolution. But to an engineer, that's very sophisticated design. A system that can adapt to different environmental pressures is much more sophisticated than one that is fixed. Then there's natural selection. This is, if you like, the survival of the fittest. Well, it's not just the survival of the fittest, it's the elimination of the weaker. So natural selection doesn't create anything, it simply destroys those that are less fit. Now, there have been simulations, there's maybe not as much evidence as people think for natural selection. But for all those, uh, I'm quite happy to accept that those processes take place and have been observed under laboratory conditions. But then there's the last type of evolution, the sort of magical bit, that the combination of the above processes, which it is claimed, result in the appearance of design. Now, those first four I've mentioned, there is scientific evidence for those. You can do experiments, you can do simulations, and uh, we can observe them actually happening. But this last one, I know of no evidence, observable evidence for that. Um, for example, can you show me one machine which looks as though it has been designed and which has a purpose, but we know has not been designed? I've mentioned that there's estimated there are 100,000 different types of machine all that fulfill that requirement at the molecular level. Is that possible? Well, just ask, have we ever seen that happen in the real world? Can you think of a single machine that looks as though it has been designed, that does something useful, but we know has not actually been intelligently designed? I've asked many scientists that. And I've never got a single example yet. And what that tells me is that there is zero evidence for this magical component, if you like, in the theory of evolution. So if someone asks me, do, I, do you believe in evolution? I have to say, which type of evolution do you mean? And I might mention those five types. I say, we have scientific evidence for the first four. None of those necessarily produce the appearance of design. But for that last type, which is really what we mean by evolution, I have so far encountered zero evidence for that. I feel privileged to have been born late enough in life to have lived through the time when scientists have discovered so much uh, of the amazing apparent evidence of design in the cell. So I just mentioned that because that's, that's one thing that I go to whenever I wonder, have I been brainwashed? Is there actual, real intelligence behind this world? Now, Christians are not the only people who have doubts. Non-Christians have doubts. Atheists have doubts. And if perhaps you're an atheist, and you sometimes have doubts, is evolution true? Have I been brainwashed by my education, by the media, by 
YouTube videos have I been brainwashed into thinking that there is not a God, then I would urge you to do what I urge Christians to do, and that is to look at the facts, to look at the evidence that we've gone through this evening. Because we don't want you to be hoodwinked into accepting the Bible and accepting the Christian message just because your friends do. We want you, if you come to faith, to have a secure faith. So I would challenge us all tonight that if we ever do have doubts about what we believe, to look at it forensically, carefully, with an open mind and unafraid of the consequences. Because as a Christian, I find that the more I look at it, the more secure I come. So I leave that challenge with you this evening and just hand back to Adam.